Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's Friday, March 22nd, 2019. It's been nearly two years since Robert Mueller was first appointed special counsel. Now he's ready to submit a final report to the attorney general. He has uncovered a sprawling and systematic effort by Russia to interfere in the 2016 election. And he's developed a mountain of evidence about the president's efforts to obstruct his investigation. Things like witness tampering, ordering the creation of false records, and trying to fire Mueller himself. But Mueller's got a problem. A Department of Justice memo says he can't indict a sitting president. So what's he supposed to do with all this evidence? Mueller decides to just lay it all out in the report, all 448 pages of it. It'll be someone else's problem to decide what to do about it. Maybe a future prosecutor, maybe Congress, maybe the American electorate. That isn't really Mueller's concern. He's done what he was asked to do. Now his report can speak for itself. Any testimony from this office would not go beyond our report. It contains our findings. We chose those words carefully, and the work speaks for itself. But Mueller doesn't know that the attorney general, Bill Barr, has other plans in mind. Major story breaking, a major victory for President Trump. Robert Mueller's report was turned in on Friday night, and tonight, just two days later, the summary now from the attorney general who said Mueller and his team found no collusion, no conspiracy between the president or his campaign with Russia. And when it comes to obstruction of justice, Robert Mueller stopping short of exonerating the president, but the attorney general essentially did, saying Mueller's team lacked sufficient evidence to establish the president committed that offense. This is the report, episode 15, Mueller's report. Over the course of Volume 2, Mueller examines a number of episodes of possible obstruction of justice. In some of them, like Trump's efforts to hide the Trump Tower meeting to get dirt on Clinton, Mueller seems to conclude that there isn't evidence of a crime at all. For others, like Trump pressuring Comey to let Flynn go, or firing the FBI director, or pressuring Jeff Sessions to unrecuse, the record is mixed— but Mueller can't find clear evidence to establish all three standard elements of obstruction. And in other places, like how Trump acts towards Flynn as he's thinking about cooperating, Mueller just isn't able to obtain all the evidence he needs because he runs into problems like attorney-client privilege. But then there are a handful of episodes that are different. Trump's efforts to have Mueller fired, his dangling of pardons to Paul Manafort, and his trying to get John McGahn to create a false record. And for these ones, Mueller finds substantial evidence to establish all key elements of obstruction of justice. But Mueller never takes the final step. He never actually accuses the president of committing a crime. In this final episode, we look at the challenges Mueller faced and how they shaped his conclusions. As Mueller begins writing his report, the evidence he's found about obstruction is uneven. 
The report examines 10 different fact patterns of Trump's conduct. And Mueller says that the evidence of Trump's corrupt intent is stronger in the second half of Volume 2 than it is in the first. The president's actions can be divided into two distinct phases reflecting a possible shift in the president's motives. In the first phase, before the president fired Comey, the president had been assured that the FBI had not opened an investigation of him personally. The president deemed it critically important to make public that he was not under investigation, and he included that information in his termination letter to Comey. Soon after he fired Comey, however, the president became aware that investigators were conducting an obstruction of justice inquiry into his own conduct. That awareness marked a significant change in the president's conduct and the start of a second phase of action. The president launched public attacks on the investigation and individuals involved in it who could possess evidence adverse to the president, while in private, the president engaged in a series of targeted efforts to control the investigation. Judgments about the nature of the president's motives during each phase would be informed by the totality of the evidence. Daniel Hemmel is a law professor who's written about presidential obstruction of justice. He explains that for things that happen before James Comey is fired, it's difficult to make out an obstruction case. At least in a criminal context, Trump still has a plausible argument of the following sort. I know that there's maybe a lot of smoke here, but no fire. And it is a diversion of FBI resources and of DOJ resources to be pursuing this investigation that I know uh, is not going to yield anything at the end of the day, except a lot of political furor. And as president, I have responsibility to make sure that the Justice Department is doing its job. And that's what I'm doing here. Uh, now, I think that was an imprudent thing for President Trump to do. But can I say beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump had corrupt intent at that point? That's hard. But Hemmel says in later events, evidence of corrupt intent is clearer, and the president doesn't really have a defense. There are specific acts that occur after the spring of 2017 that are impossible to defend as taking care that the laws are faithfully executed. Probably the most glaring of these is Trump telling McGahn to write a letter recounting facts that didn't happen. You can say, yeah, the president has a responsibility to make sure that the Justice Department isn't uh, barking up the wrong tree. It's really hard to see how the president would ever have a responsibility to tell his White House counsel to lie. So among the numerous incidents Mueller examines, only a handful emerge as having strong evidence of all three elements. But even among some of these, Mueller acknowledges that Trump wasn't necessarily successful in his obstruction. The president's efforts to influence the investigation were mostly unsuccessful, but that is largely because the persons who surrounded the president declined to carry out orders or accede to his requests. Comey did not end the investigation of Flynn, which ultimately resulted in Flynn's prosecution and conviction for lying to the FBI. McGahn did not tell the acting attorney general that the special counsel must be removed, but was instead prepared to resign over the president's order. Lewandowski and Dearborn did not deliver the president's message to Sessions that he should confine the Russia investigation to future election meddling only. 
and McGahn refused to recede from his recollections about events surrounding the president's direction to have the special counsel removed, despite the president's multiple demands that he do so. Is the president really saved by people not listening to him? Here's former U.S. attorney Chuck Rosenberg. Look, as a matter of fact, it helps the president that the people around him were more honest than he was and that they didn't do what he asked them to do. As a legal matter, it doesn't make a difference. If I ask you to lie to the FBI on my behalf and you tell the FBI the truth, I've still endeavored, attempted to obstruct justice by trying to influence you as a witness. The fact that you're more honest than me, the fact that Don McGahn is more honest than the president, doesn't get him out of trouble legally. But when prosecutors assess facts, they also do look at whether or not the attempt succeeded. Hemel notes that there's a reason why no one else will go along with what Trump is asking. The widespread defiance of President Trump was an indication of the efficacy of criminal law. Why doesn't Don McGahn write a letter stating that Trump never asked him to fire Bob Mueller? Because Don McGahn doesn't want to go to jail. There's another wrinkle, too. Volume 2 is about obstructing the investigation into Volume 1. But Mueller didn't ultimately determine that Trump, or anyone on his campaign, engaged in a criminal conspiracy with the Russians. In other words, he found that the collusion wasn't a crime. The evidence we obtained did not establish that the president was involved in an underlying crime related to Russian election interference. Although the obstruction statutes do not require proof of such a crime, the absence of that evidence affects the analysis of the president's intent and requires consideration of other possible motives for his conduct. If Mueller had found an underlying crime, then it would be apparent why someone would have the motive to try and obstruct it or impede it. Uh, but he didn't have those things. The fact that Mueller doesn't determine there was an underlying crime isn't necessarily legally significant. It complicates the story, but even if Volume 1 doesn't find Trump committed a crime, it does uncover a whole lot of problematic evidence for the president. The Mueller report undersold the strength of the collusion evidence. The Trump campaign was certainly coordinating uh, with outside actors who it knew were trying to influence the outcome of a U.S. election. So if the question was, was there enough evidence of bad acts by the campaign to supply a motive for Trump to obstruct justice? Well, surely there was here. If the stuff in the first part of the report had suggested that uh, Trump was a choir boy, then you might say, well, that's a challenge for the second part of the report. Um, but we know from the first half of the report that that is not what happened. There's another odd thing Mueller has to confront, too, which is that Trump did a lot of this in public. Usually, obstruction of justice is done secretly, but the president is encouraging people not to cooperate and dangling pardons right out in the open, in tweets and on TV. That circumstance is unusual, but no principle of law excludes public acts from the reach of the obstruction laws. If the likely effect of public acts is to influence witnesses or alter their testimony, the harm to the justice system's integrity is the same. Some crimes take place uh, privately and some take place publicly. So I don't know that that would give anybody 
any degree of comfort. It strikes me as an incredibly hollow argument. Uh, and by the way, not all the crimes uh, that uh, Mueller laid out took place in public. Some of them were private conversations between the president and people around him. They were not sort of tweeted or promoted publicly. The um, FBI team that Mueller used found them by interviewing witnesses who were there and who heard it and who saw it, but they weren't public acts in the beginning. These are all pretty minor issues for Mueller to overcome, and he addresses them all in the report. But Mueller's got a bigger problem, too, and that's that Donald Trump is the president. And the president gets to do things that other people don't. That means there's a question of how to even apply the obstruction statute to Trump. Some of the conduct did not implicate the president's constitutional authority and raises garden variety obstruction of justice issues. Other events we investigated, however, drew upon the president's Article II authority, which raised constitutional issues. A factual analysis of that conduct would have to take into account both that the president's acts were facially lawful and that his position as head of the executive branch provides him with unique and powerful means of influencing official proceedings, subordinate officers, and potential witnesses. Here's Harvard Law professor Jack Goldsmith. The real question here is whether the statute as it currently is written, applies to the president. Because the statute doesn't, by its terms, apply to the president. And there's a rule in the executive branch that says that statutes that burden Article II powers of the president do not apply to the president unless Congress expressly extends that statute to the executive. There's not much, if any, legal independence of the Justice Department from the president. There's a lot of independence in practice but it's all governed by norms. But every president since Watergate until Trump has basically respected the norm that when there is an ongoing investigation of the White House, at least the president doesn't overtly attack it. We usually think of law enforcement independence as being safeguarded by presidents who don't want to test the limits, not by clear laws saying what he can and can't do. But Trump does test the limits in a way no other president has. So Mueller has to confront questions that no one's had to answer before. Questions like whether a president can criminally obstruct justice by trying to control the Justice Department. It's a bit of a paradox because the president has the constitutional power to control the direction of the Justice Department. But there are a lot of good reasons why we don't want him controlling certain things because... He could do it in a self-serving and political way. So we have these norms that separate out the two. It's not, for the most part, legal constraint. So the hard question presented by volume two of the Mueller report is, is there in fact a legal constraint? Beyond these norms, do the obstruction of justice statutes oppose a different level of prohibition on the president's efforts to influence what's going on in the Justice Department when the White House itself and the president are under investigation? Mueller notes that there is some activity in the report that falls within Trump's constitutional power, stuff like firing the FBI director or leaning on the attorney general. Here's John Barrett, a law professor at St. John's University, who served as an associate counsel in the Iran-Contra investigation. President removing subordinates in the executive branch is within his constitutional power. So it's a, a... theoretical clash between the constitutional law of presidential power 
and the criminal law of obstruction of justice. And Mueller sidesteps those questions in the end, sort of leaves them for another branch and another process in his report. But there are other things Trump does where drawing the line between lawful authority and criminal abuse gets harder. Goldsmith says one place to possibly draw the line is at a corrupt purpose. The president can fully exercise his Article II powers, but he cannot do so corruptly. So on the one hand, some people think, well, we're just going to apply the statute to the president and we're going to just we're going to protect the president by limiting the things that he can be in trouble for to corrupt activity and we'll have to make it be really corrupt, super corrupt maybe, a high bar for corruption. But there's a different view as well. People on the other end, like Barr saying, there's no circumstance at all under which Congress can ever apply the obstruction of justice statute to a presidential action that burdens Article 2. Attorney General Barr's worry in the memorandum that he wrote before he became Attorney General that if you apply the obstruction of justice statute to Article 2 activity, you're going to chill the president and prevent him from exercising his Article 2 powers. Mueller doesn't agree. He says that when a president acts with a corrupt purpose, he can violate the obstruction laws, and that obstruction laws apply to the president. Here's Hemmel again. He said, look, there are all sorts of times when what you are doing would be lawful, but for the fact that you intended to obstruct an investigation. And the president's power under Article 2 is limited by the take care clause. He needs to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And if what he's doing is something other than that, if what he's doing is protecting himself or protecting his close associates or protecting his son, then what he's doing is not authorized by Article 2. And Mueller is basically saying, look, there's not an overlap. Because right? if what you're doing is corruptly interfering with an investigation, well, then you're not taking care that the laws are faithfully executed. Right? Then you're not within your Article II powers. And Mueller is clear that there's also stuff in Volume 2 that doesn't have anything to do with the president's constitutional powers. Here's Paul Rosenzweig, who served under Whitewater Independent Counsel Ken Starr. When Trump later understood that that might be a problem, he asked McGahn to create a false memorandum to the record, put it in the file, and say falsely that Donald Trump never told me to go and try and fire Mueller. And so that's an activity that is outside the bounds of Article 2 because the creation of a false record is in fact contravening established legal requirements, the Presidential Records Act for one thing, prohibitions against perjury and creating false records and obstruction of justice for another. And so it could not colorably be seen as an act in service of a legitimate Article II executive authority. There's another way that Trump is different from regular citizens. In a normal criminal investigation, one way prosecutors can establish intent is by asking someone questions under penalty of perjury. But this isn't a normal investigation. And when Trump refuses to be interviewed by Mueller, the special counsel backs down rather than going to court to try to force Trump to testify. We also sought a voluntary interview with the president. After more than a year of discussion, the president declined to be interviewed. 
the president did agree to answer written questions on certain Russia-related topics. He did not similarly agree to provide written answers to questions on obstruction topics or on questions on events during the transition. Ultimately, while we believed that we had the authority and legal justification to issue a grand jury subpoena to obtain the president's testimony, we chose not to do so. We made that decision in view of the substantial delay that such an investigative step would likely produce at a late stage in our investigation. We also assessed that based on the significant body of evidence we had already obtained of the president's actions and his public and private statements describing or explaining those actions, we had sufficient evidence to understand relevant events and to make certain assessments without the president's testimony. Why is it that Trump wouldn't talk to Mueller? At first, the White House had been open to cooperating with the special counsel. Are you going to talk to Mueller? I'm looking forward to it, actually. You want to? Do you have a date yeah, set? Just start. Just do you have a date set, There's Mr. been President? no collusion whatsoever, yeah. but I would love to do that, and I'd like to do it as soon as possible. When will you do it, Mr. President? Do you have a date But as the president's troubles deepen, the strategy changes. Here's Mike Schmidt of The New York Times. Emmett Flood replaces Ty Cobb as the in-house White House lawyer. The cooperation is over, and we've given you more than enough, and the effort is put into place to stop Trump from having to interview. And what can they do to head that off? Because there was a feeling amongst the president's personal lawyers that if the president was interviewed, that could very easily increase his legal exposure, and Trump ultimately avoids having to answer questions. So that was a significant turning point for the president. Trump refusing to talk to Mueller causes real problems for the special counsel. Those written answers to written questions that the president provided weren't a real substitute for an interview. Sure, the president answered some of the questions about Russia and the election, but he didn't answer all of them. And he wouldn't answer any questions about obstruction. And there was no opportunity for follow-up questions. In December 2018, we informed counsel of the insufficiency of those responses in several respects. We noted, among other things, that the president stated on more than 30 occasions that he does not recall or remember information called for by the questions. Other answers were incomplete or imprecise. Mueller says the written answers aren't enough and asks again for an interview. But Trump refuses. Getting testimony or an interview or answers from a president is very high stakes and very complicated. It hasn't arisen very much. We're talking negotiation through attorneys and very gentle requests to impose on the time of the person who's got the toughest job on the planet. And when Trump was not agreeing to do an interview, they let it go. In the interest of expedition, in respect for his office, and or because in the end they concluded that it would be cumulative and they had enough for where they were. It's a complex judgment. I think from the outside, it's hard to strongly second guess it, but obviously it meant that the record from President Trump is much less than theoretically it could be. It's a problem that Trump won't give Mueller an interview. But the special counsel says Trump's intent, at least in some places, is clear from his public statements and overall pattern of activity. 
After all, President Trump isn't really someone who hides his feelings. But the entire thing has been a witch hunt. Robert Mueller should have never been chosen. I think it was uh, disgraceful. Disgraceful. Uh, Look, it's just a continuation of the witch hunt. It's the worst witch hunt in political history. It's the single greatest witch hunt in American history, probably in history, but in American history. That's something that Nazi Germany would have done and did do. Having assembled all the evidence he could, and having addressed the various hurdles along the way, Mueller now confronts the biggest problem of all. Back in 1973, during Watergate, the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel adopted a legal position that a sitting president cannot be indicted. A 1973 Justice Department memo that looked at criminal prosecutions of the highest office holders was clear. There is no express provision in the Constitution that immunizes a president, but an indictment would interfere with the president's unique official duties, most of which cannot be performed by someone else. And constitutionally, only Congress should be accorded the power to interrupt the presidency. The Office of Legal Counsel has issued an opinion finding that, quote, the indictment or criminal prosecution of a sitting president would impermissibly undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions, unquote, in violation of the constitutional separation of powers. This office accepted OLC's legal conclusion for the purpose of exercising prosecutorial jurisdiction. So Mueller never intended to indict the president on obstruction of justice charges. He considered himself bound by the OLC memo's conclusion. Here's John Barrett. I think a lot of discussion on the outside should have understood that that was etched in stone. That's like the words that are chiseled over the Department of Justice throughout the Mueller investigation. And he wasn't going to you know, challenge that or override that. Those, those are fundamental parts of the policy that he, as a special counsel, was constrained to follow. Not all experts agree with the OLC's determination that the president cannot be indicted. Here's Rosenzweig again. The idea that a sitting president can't be indicted is a construct of the Department of Justice and the Office of Legal Counsel as an argument about protecting the executive branch. First off, There's absolutely no text in the Constitution that supports that idea. And we know from the fact that the founders put in a speech and debate clause immunity and the arrest clause protection against arrest while going to and from Congress, that they actually knew what immunity was and they knew how to write it if they wanted to. So the first inference from, from the text is that this is made up out of whole cloth. Still, most experts do agree that Mueller didn't have any choice but to follow the memo. Here's former Justice Department official Mary McCord. This is a memo that is binding on Department of Justice prosecutors. And of course, when Mr. Mueller was the special counsel, he was a member of the Department of Justice. He was an an employee of the Department of Justice. So he was bound by that. So he knew that regardless of what he and his team might think was provable, right, if you think of a whole prosecution memo. We lay out the facts. We lay out the elements of the crimes. How do the how do the facts fit into those elements? He did all of that. He just didn't come to that last step because of the OLC memo. Usually, at the end of an investigation, prosecutors make a decision. They decide either to prosecute someone or to decline to do so. But Mueller says those options aren't available to him here. 
And so he can't make a traditional prosecutorial decision. A traditional prosecution or declination decision entails a binary determination to initiate or decline a prosecution, but we determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment. Here's Chuck Rosenberg. It's not what prosecutors normally do. Prosecutors normally make a binary choice. You either bring charges or you don't bring charges. If you bring charges, then the charges are made public and people can see it and evaluate it for themselves. If you don't bring charges, uh, then there's nothing to look at. So you're in a bit of a weird middle ground in which you're not bringing charges, but there's a lot to look at. Mueller says that while the OLC opinion means he cannot indict a sitting president, it does say investigating a president while in office is allowed. After all, a president isn't immune from prosecution after he leaves office. Could you charge the president with a crime after he left office? Yes. You believe that he committed, you could charge the president of the United States with obstruction of justice after he left office? Yes. While the OLC opinion concludes that a sitting president may not be prosecuted, it recognizes that a criminal investigation during the president's term is permissible. The OLC opinion also recognizes that a president does not have immunity after he leaves office. We conducted a thorough factual investigation in order to preserve the evidence when memories were fresh and documentary materials were available. He was directed to conduct an investigation. He was directed to write a report. He did those two things. When you do those two things, you want to memorialize it somewhere because all presidents become former presidents and there's no prohibition on charging a former president. And so documenting the investigation, you know, compiling the evidence, putting it all in one place and having a report that describes your work makes perfect sense. Mueller determines that investigating the president is legitimate because he can be indicted and prosecuted after he leaves office. But Mueller doesn't stop there. He actually takes the OLC guidance a step further. If he isn't allowed to indict a sitting president, Mueller decides he can't even accuse a sitting president of committing a crime, no matter what the evidence says. The ordinary means for an individual to respond to an accusation is through a speedy and public trial with all the procedural protections that surround a criminal case. An individual who believes he was wrongly accused can use that process to seek to clear his name. In contrast, a prosecutor's judgment that crimes were committed but that no charges will be brought affords no such adversarial opportunity for public name-clearing before an impartial adjudicator. In other words, if the whole idea behind the OLC memo is that indicting a president would make it too hard for him to do his job, then accusing him of committing a crime would make it hard too. And beyond that, it just wouldn't be fair to accuse someone when they aren't able to defend themselves in court. The concerns about the fairness of such a determination would be heightened in the case of a sitting president where a federal prosecutor's accusation of a crime, even in an internal report, could carry consequences that extend beyond the realm of criminal justice. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. 
Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Here's Daniel Hamill again. So he says he's bound by the OLC opinion and he could just leave that there and then say, I can't indict him, but I think he committed obstruction. Instead, he makes a different move. He says, I can't indict him, and therefore it would be unfair for me to reach a conclusion as to obstruction that then couldn't be tested in a court of law. Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein knew about the OLC memo when he tasked Mueller as special counsel. So uh, the, the charge was, uh, was not just to write a book report. Nothing in the OLC memo says uh, that you can't reach a conclusion as to the indictability of a president. It just says that you can't indict the president. And I understand the fairness argument, but gosh, he's the president of the United States. He's got a big bully pulpit that he can use to defend himself. These are allegations that can be ultimately tested in a court of law. We might just have to wait until 2021 for that. Prosecutors all the time reach judgments about the indictability of a uh, defendant, even though they know there will be some time uh, before that matter is definitively resolved by a court. But Mueller wants to be clear. If he had been able to exonerate the president of crimes, he would say so. And he isn't saying that. If we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. The evidence we obtained about the president's actions and intent presents difficult issues that prevent us from conclusively determining that no criminal conduct occurred. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. Mary McCord says it's not all that difficult to read between the lines of what Mueller is saying here. There is a lot in here that certainly paints the president in a very, very bad light. And so, to my mind, it went, you know, to the very, very edge of going ahead and saying he committed a crime without going right over the edge and saying he committed a crime. You can read between the lines when he says substantial versus some versus being more equivocating. You can kind of tell, from to me, which instances he and his team felt had the most significant evidence that would have supported a prosecution. Mueller has collected the evidence and assembled the record, but he won't say whether he thinks the president committed crimes. He'll only say that he doesn't think it's clear that the president is innocent. Mueller has written his report, and he's left it to some other future prosecutor to make the decision. But there's a problem that Mueller doesn't appear to have seen coming. 
Attorney General Bill Barr. Good evening. President Trump calls it a complete and total exoneration. Today, Attorney General William Barr released his summary of special counsel Robert Mueller's report. Mueller doesn't get to just release his report to the public. Under the regulations, he's got to go through the attorney general. And when Barr gets the report, he doesn't just release the redacted version right away. And he doesn't release the executive summaries that Mueller wrote himself either. Instead, Barr writes his own summary of the document. After nearly two years of investigation, thousands of subpoenas, hundreds of warrants and witness interviews, the special counsel confirmed that the Russian government sponsored efforts to illegally interfere with the 2016 presidential election, but did not find that the Trump campaign or other Americans colluded in those efforts. After finding no underlying collusion with Russia, the report recounts 10 episodes involving the president and discusses potential legal theories for connecting those activities to the elements of an obstruction offense. So Mueller's report in March, of course, went to Barr and Barr summarized it promptly and then over a few weeks redacted it lightly and then released it and summarized it again. And so the you know, the Mueller report largely emerged, but it emerged in a, a sort of velvet box of padding prepared by the attorney general. And Barr decides that Mueller's refusal to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment doesn't leave the question open for a future prosecutor to decide after the president leaves office. Instead, he says that because Mueller leaves the question open, Barr himself, as attorney general, gets to answer it. And according to Barr, the president didn't commit a crime. After carefully reviewing the facts and legal theories outlined in the report and in consultation with the Office of Legal Counsel and other department lawyers, the deputy attorney general and I concluded that the evidence developed by the special counsel is not sufficient to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. In other words, Barr read the report, the same one you've listened to over the past 14 episodes, and decided there wasn't anything there to support a claim that the president obstructed justice. And so he was declining to prosecute. By inserting a declination decision, Barr made it far more difficult for future prosecutors to contemplate bringing charges. Members of Congress aren't happy about what Barr has done. Here's Senator Richard Blumenthal. You ignored in that press conference and in the summary that Robert Mueller found substantial evidence, and it's in the report. And we have a chart that shows the elements of that crime, intent, interference with an ongoing investigation, and the obstructive act. So I think that your credibility is undermined within the department, in this committee, and with the American people. And when the actual redacted report is finally released, there are big discrepancies between Barr's summary and what Mueller had written. I thought Barr's summary of Mueller's report was deeply unfortunate because it mischaracterized the report. You can't hold them side by side uh, and see the same thing. Barr's summary, I think, unfairly characterized Mueller's findings. I don't know that Bob Mueller had in mind that the attorney general would determine and determine publicly that there was insufficient evidence to charge the president and that they would therefore decline. 
uh, you know, that surprised me. First of all, I don't think there's insufficient evidence. Quite to the contrary, I think the evidence of obstruction of justice in the Mueller report is overwhelming. If the special counsel makes a judgment and the attorney general in good faith disagrees with it, it's the attorney general's call. On the other hand, what the attorney general doesn't get to do is mischaracterize the work, right? So it's one thing to reach a different judgment. That happens all the time. It's quite another to mischaracterize the work. It later comes out that Mueller himself wasn't especially happy with how Barr had represented the report. Breaking news tonight, the New York Times and the Washington Post reporting special counsel Robert Mueller wrote a letter in late March to Attorney General William Barr objecting to his early description of the Russia investigation's conclusions that appeared to clear President Trump on possible obstruction of justice. The Washington Post reporting Mueller wrote, quote, The summary letter the department sent to Congress and released to the public late in the afternoon of March 24th did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of this office's work and conclusions. There is now public confusion about critical aspects of the results of our investigation. But the damage had been done. Barr's summary dramatically shaped the initial public narrative. We didn't get to see the redacted Mueller report for several weeks until after the summary was released. And by then, the summary had already grabbed the headlines. And people thought knew or thought they knew what was in the Mueller report um, based on the summary. This is a cliche, but right, you know, the, the notion that a lie is halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. Uh, and that was certainly the case here. And so the narrative became what Barr described it to be, that the president was exonerated, that there was no collusion, that there was insufficient evidence, that there was no obstruction, and that the president was acting wholly within his Article II authority. The report tells an extraordinarily different story. Barr has thrown a wrench into Mueller's apparent intention of deferring to future prosecutors in the long term. But Mueller indicates that his report might also be intended to defer to another branch of government in the short term, Congress. We recognize that a federal criminal accusation against a sitting president would place burdens on the president's capacity to govern and potentially preempt constitutional processes for addressing presidential misconduct. Mueller doesn't say directly that he's talking about impeachment here, at least not in the report's main text. Well, he more than hints. He puts a footnote that actually cites to the constitutional provision that is the House's authority to impeach. So it's it's subtle, but it is right there. Uh, and I think Mueller, with the DOJ policy that says you may not hold a president criminally responsible, naturally looks to Congress. And I think it's clear that Mueller's report is filled with potential impeachment information. And so Mueller wrote it in a way that isn't quite a roadmap and isn't named an impeachment report, but is in that area, knowing that Barr was on the record that it would largely reach the public and thus reach the House of Representatives. It isn't entirely clear the extent to which Mueller thought of the report as a type of impeachment referral. When he's asked in congressional testimony, he refuses to answer. Chuck Rosenberg says he doesn't think Mueller views it as his job. Uh, I thought he did what he was asked to do, which was to conduct an investigation and write a report. Now, if the report is useful to Congress, so be it. I don't know this for a fact, but I don't think that Bob Mueller saw it as his job uh, to make an impeachment referral to Congress. 
Rosenzweig thinks Mueller is being a little coy on the question. I think he sidles up to it without quite engaging in it fully. Uh, uh, Clearly, he makes a number of references to Congress's independent authority to look at the same set of facts and reach its own independent conclusions. And clearly, some of the factual things that he brings forth were intended as much for that congressional audience as for an audience of fellow prosecutors or the attorney general. Yet at the same time, he's, you know, almost too coy by half and never actually, like, saying, and this might be an impeachable offense, right? Doesn't like to use the I word when he testified. Whatever Mueller might have intended, ultimately, Congress gets his report. Barr's letter may warp the public narrative, but congressional Democrats think if they can get Mueller to come testify, to tell the story in televised hearings, that might break through. Breaking news out of Washington, Robert Mueller will testify about the Russia investigation. Democrats announcing overnight they subpoenaed a resistant special counsel, Robert Mueller. He will answer questions related to his report on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. I don't think the special counsel's office uh, would characterize it as a friendly subpoena. Um, He did not want to testify. Mueller made a public statement on May 29th that his more than 400-page report is his testimony. But he seems to have succumbed to pressure from House Democrats by issue of subpoena. The problem is that it turns out Mueller meant it when he said he wasn't going to go beyond the report. I'm not certain I would uh, adopt that. Well, I can't get into it, and, uh, and it's obvious, I think, that we can't get into charging decisions. And again, I'm not going to speak to that issue. Again, it's outside our ambit, and uh, uh, questions such as that should go to the FBI or the department. Mueller shows up, and he says everyone should read his report. The press declares that the testimony has fallen flat. So look, on optics, this was a disaster. Remember, House Judiciary Committee Democrats do believe they should start impeachment. That's what Bob Mueller thought was needed to done needed to be done. He didn't do anything today to help advance that cause if he believes that is where this should head. Rosenberg says it shouldn't have been a surprise that Mueller wouldn't give dramatic testimony. I had the privilege of working for Bob Mueller at the FBI. I mean, he is a remarkably decent, thoughtful, you know, restrained professional. So I never thought that it was going to sort of light a fire in any way. Mueller always does things by the book. That's what he is. That's who he is. And anybody who expected other than that, I think, um, clearly misunderstands the man. And Hemel says that while Barr may have shaped the initial public narrative, at the end of the day, it was Mueller's decision not to say whether Trump has broken the law. Mueller meant for this to be read as an impeachment referral. Uh, He could have gone on to Capitol Hill and said, I think that the criteria for obstruction of justice have been met here. And I don't think that the Justice Department can, under its current policies, move forward. But the ball is in Congress's court. He, He says a lot less than that when he goes and testifies. Barr definitely put some shade on the report in the misleading short four-page letter that he released upon receipt of the report. But Barr's role here can't excuse Mueller of responsibility for his sort of sotto voce conclusion. And Robert Mueller had a unique opportunity to speak to Congress and the nation unmediated by Bill Barr. And he chose not to say what so many of us wanted him to say, which was, 
this is obstruction of justice. Mueller didn't write in to save the day. He just did the job he was asked to do under the regulations. And he refused to answer the question that he left for Congress. But he did offer a final warning. Um, In your investigation, did you think that this was a single attempt by the Russians to get involved in our election, or did you find evidence to suggest they'll try to do this again? No, it wasn't a single attempt. Uh, They're doing it as we sit here. And they expect to do it uh, 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 during the, the next campaign. After Mueller testifies, the president declares victory. He's gotten away with it. He survived the special counsel investigation he once thought would be the end of his presidency. No one is going to be able to hold him accountable for what he's done. We had a very good day today, the Republican Party, our country. There was no defense to this ridiculous hoax, this witch hunt that's been going on for a long time. It's a disgrace what happened, but I think today proved a lot to everybody. And that might have been the end of the story. After Mueller's testimony, the House Judiciary Committee began a preliminary impeachment inquiry, but witnesses refused to testify, and support for an impeachment inquiry began to wane. It seemed as if the Mueller report, and all that it revealed, might not matter in the end. But it turns out that the very day after Mueller testified, the president, having survived the special counsel, having been declared untouchable, picked up the phone with the president of Ukraine, and he suggested that maybe the Ukrainians should help him out in the 2020 election. Tonight, an explosive allegation by a government whistleblower that the White House engaged in a cover-up by stashing records of the president's phone call with a foreign leader in a top-secret computer. The Wall Street Journal first report that in a July phone call, Trump repeatedly pressured the president of Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden's son, asking eight times for him to work with Rudy Giuliani on the inquiry that could damage his chief Democratic opponent. As to whether the president attempted to collude with a foreign power this time Ukraine, to impact the 2020 election. Democrats zeroing in on the next portion of the conversation. It's a ridiculous story. It's a partisan whistleblower. And I have news for everybody. Get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. That the Trump administration's envoy to Ukraine has resigned. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. I'm directing our six committees to proceed with their investigations under that umbrella. God bless them and God bless America. Thank you. There is no next time on the report. We've come to the end of the story Robert Mueller tells in those 448 pages. What the Russians did to interfere in the 2016 election, who knew and who helped, and what the president did to obstruct the investigation along the way. But the ending of this story isn't Robert Mueller's to write, and it hasn't been decided yet. Mueller's work is done. He told us what happened, or at least the parts he could uncover. Now Congress and the American public have to decide. What does it mean, and is it okay? The Mueller report outlines disturbing evidence that President Trump engaged in obstruction of justice and other misconduct. 
and they made a decision that there was no obstruction. So that makes it a complete and total exoneration. I don't know any other way to look at it. It was a complete and total exoneration. And hopefully somebody's going to look at the other side. You might say that's all okay. You might say that's just what you need to do to win. But I don't think it's okay. I think it's immoral. I think it's unethical. I think it's unpatriotic. And yes, I think it's corrupt. And I will close by reiterating the central allegation of our indictments that there were multiple systematic efforts to interfere in our election. And that allegation deserves the attention of every American. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening to the final chapter of The Report. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Democracy Fund, and by listeners like you. To support this project, please go to lawfareblog.com. The Report is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. Ian Enright is the executive producer. Production assistance from Shar Dreyer. From the Lawfare team, the project is led by executive editor Susan Hennessy. Editor-in-chief is Benjamin Wittes. Interviews conducted by managing editor Quinta Jurassic. Recordings by Michaela Fogel and Jacob Schultz. Additional assistance by Margaret Taylor and Gordon All. Special thanks to Daniel Hemmel, Chuck Rosenberg, Jack Goldsmith, John Barrett, Paul Rosenzweig, Mary McCord, Mike Schmidt, and everyone who made this podcast possible. And thank you, the listening audience. If you think this story matters, and that more Americans should understand what is in the Mueller report, please share this podcast widely and leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And continue following this feed for bonus episodes and additional content in the future. On behalf of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, thanks for listening. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us. The report is brought to you by Goat Rodeo, a different kind of audio network, taking sound to new places for your brand, startup, or organization. To learn more, visit GoatRodeoDC.com. We're Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.